Last week, lawmakers in Tennessee gathered in downtown Nashville to make a request. And we're here today to appeal to Governor Haslam's heart and to his sense of justice to grant... This was a last-ditch effort to convince the outgoing Republican governor to grant clemency to a 30-year-old woman who's been in prison nearly half her life. Her name is Centoya Brown. It was a horrible crime, but we have to ask ourselves... What was a grown man doing in the bed with a 16-year-old girl? Still a child. Centoya ended up in prison because as a teenager, she killed a man who paid her $150 for sex. The police said this was a robbery, a murder. Centoya said it was self-defense. The state representative who held this press conference said it almost didn't matter. In Centoria's case, she was sentenced to a lifetime in prison. She's already served uh, almost 15 years in prison. And to keep her in prison for 51 years is double travesty to a young victim of sexual exploitation. Clemency was the last option. The people asking for a shorter sentence didn't seem particularly optimistic. This press conference ended with a prayer. Let us bow our heads in prayer. And so, God, we ask right now for your mercy, for your grace. God, she can't speak for herself, and so we're speaking. We are speaking for justice, God. We're speaking for that do-over. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Then, on Monday... Thank you all for being here. I'm Charles Bone, and uh, this has been an amazing, uh, amazing journey. Centoya Brown's lawyers held a press conference of their own. So we walked in, and Mr. Bone immediately told her, you're getting out in August. Kathy Sinback was Centoya's first public defender. Kathy was one of the people who told Centoya her request for clemency had been granted. She, um, at one point, one of the members of the team said, are you a little disappointed that it's seven months from now and you're not walking out today? And she said, are you crazy? (laughs) She said, I was supposed to get out when I was 67 years old. When this press conference was over, a juvenile court judge stepped up to the microphone and burst into song. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. It seemed like a victory. And for Centoya Brown, it was. But there are thousands of other women just like her. People have been exploited the same way Centoya was, but may not be as sympathetic. So on today's show, we're going to give you a new way of looking at this case. As a story of not just one woman, but many. We'll tell you why one advocate calls what Centoya did an act of radical self-love. And we'll ask what next for other women who aren't getting out anytime soon. Stay with us. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I wanted to talk to Mariam Kaba about Centoya Brown's story because Mariam has been an advocate for rethinking our justice system for years, first in Chicago and now in New York. Uh, my name is Mariam Kaba. Um, I am the founder and director of an organization called Project Nia, which is a grassroots organization uh, dedicated to ending youth incarceration. Mariam has written about how the media talks about Centoya Brown, the tropes and the stereotypes we lean on. She pushed me to see this narrative differently. She started off by telling me that Centoya's story isn't just one story. There are really three ways of looking at it. I mean, I think it depends on what part of the world you're hearing the story from. There's the story told by state prosecutors. The state offered a story in court about her being someone who intentionally shot a man in his sleep in order to rob him. It's the story that got told at trial. It's the story that landed her with a life without parole sentence and tried as an adult. There's almost nothing about the actual brutality of the pimp who had coerced her you know, that story got erased completely from the state story. Then there's the story told by Centoya Brown's defense by her family and friends. A young girl who is incredibly afraid ends up, because she's being coerced by this older pimp, getting uh, picked up for sex by a 43-year-old man when she's 16. And she goes to the house. She finds that this person has a gun under the bed. She is scared. She's afraid that he's going to use the gun on her. She ends up taking the gun and shooting him because she's saying that she was trying to basically defend herself. He threatened her and she ends up killing him. Then there's this third story, the one that's often told on the internet. Over the last couple of years, tweets and Instagram posts from celebrities like Ashley Judd and Rihanna have pushed the courts, and then the governor, to reconsider Centoya's case. But in doing that, many people have framed Centoya Brown as a girl, not a woman. You know, 16 at the time, she is therefore not an adult. She cannot consent to sex. She's being trafficked by this cutthroat guy who's her pimp, and he's basically coercing her in general, but also coercing her to go out and get money and... You know, their narrative is a rescue narrative. You know, this is a child. This should not have happened. She should, you know, she she's basically a complete and utter victim in the whole entire story. Yeah, you raise this issue that these well-intentioned advocates really do this work that you see as damaging. Can you explain that a little bit? I think the story of rescue often negates people's agency and people's choices that they make under constraints and under horrible circumstances. I have worked many years in support of young people who trade sex for money and survival needs. There is a, a issue around no child can consent to sex that completely negates the fact that there are young people who trade sex for money and survival needs rationally in order to live, you know? That also links to the larger question of 
making Sinchoya into this perfect victim who had no choices whatsoever, somebody who was, you know, completely devoid of her own agency. If that's the frame you adopt for her life, then how do you make sense of a choice to defend her life? Yeah, I think part of the challenge and part of what you're talking about with Sintoya is one of the ways people shared her story was with this artwork that showed her in pigtails from when she was on trial, these pigtail braids. And I guess what you're saying is that portraying her in this way as really a girl, it really denies her personhood. Yeah. People really wanted, you know, I think this is important to say, when when folks are paying attention to a story, a large part of the kind of social media audience for this story thought that this situation had just happened, right? Mm-hmm. So the, they are consuming this, not having known that she'd already spent 13 years by that point locked up in jail. So they are seeing this image of her circulating with pigtails, and they think that this is Sintoya now, presently. You know, she's 16 years old. She killed her, you know, a John who she was afraid was going to harm her. And she's at this point, when this thing comes up last year, she's 29. Why freeze her as a 16-year-old? For many people, it's because that's her most sympathetic, right? That's her at her most sympathetic. It's something that people then feel that they can relate to, is that she's a 16-year-old kid. She doesn't deserve this. But what we're, the point often, you know, the point that we're making in our piece and the point we make in our work at Survive and Punish is that nobody deserves to be criminalized for survival. No matter what your race is, no matter what your gender expression is, no one deserves that. I've covered juvenile justice a little bit as a reporter. I spoke to a lawyer who crafted the case that went to the Supreme Court to make sure that juveniles weren't in prison for life. And mm-hmm. I remember him saying that part of what they did, part of the strategy, which is cynical, yes, but it was part of their strategy, was to put out pictures of these juvenile offenders as children. Yes. And... Those were white males, so it's not right. just Sintoya. No, of course not. Do you think it's a problem across the board? Yeah, it is a problem if the point that's trying to be made is that only children are deserving of our concern for excessive punishment and incarceration. You don't use some groups of people in order to make other people's freedom more difficult. So, yes, tell the full story. Let people know that this happened when she was 16. Let people know that it's immoral, in my opinion, to be caging 16-year-olds for life without parole. Say all that, absolutely. But tell a fuller story and also acknowledge the fact that Centoya is now a grown woman and she still and definitely deserves to be free. The thing about Centoya Brown's story is that no matter which version you tell, it can feel familiar. It has precedence and history, parallels. Maryam Kaba likes to tell this story of an enslaved woman named Celia, a woman who was purchased in Missouri back in 1850 when she was 14 years old. 
She was raped repeatedly by the man who bought her. She bore two of his children. And then when she reportedly was trying to reject his advances one night, she killed him. We know all this because Celia was put on trial for the man's murder, and she had a vigorous defense. But the laws at the time didn't recognize enslaved people as people. They were property, incapable of self-defense. And a jury found Celia guilty of murder. She was executed by hanging less than three months later. When I read her story, it really struck me in a very... um, kind of in a very visceral way, because it encapsulated so much for me, the connections between shadow slavery and the treatment of Black women in our culture and in our society. The fact that we've always, you know, been able to be accused of murder and be accountable for that. But at the same time, we're not actually persons. So you can't receive the protections that the state should offer. Those notions are very, they're kind of baked in to our cultural scripts. The notion is that we don't really have a self to defend, you know? So, Centoya is going to be freed in August, 15 years after she was put, well, I think after she went on trial. Does that make a difference? It's not justice. No, it's not justice. It's good. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's good that she's going to be out of prison after serving 15 years, in my opinion, when she shouldn't have served one day. But it's good that she's going to get out. But she is one of thousands. And I just think I want people to understand that, that we've got a whole bunch of people locked up, criminalized for defending themselves and criminalized for survival in general. In your writings, you have this really striking way of talking about what Centoya did and other women that you mentor did that sort of got them to this point. You call them acts of radical self-love. Why? You know, one of the things that I find so frustrating in our culture is that you are punished so severely for wanting to live that what the message is, is that it'd be preferable if you actually died. Only some people have access to the rights of self-defense in our culture, and they better be white, and they better be men, overwhelmingly. And so you saying, no, I'm refusing, I'm not going to succumb to the violence that is being directed at me, is an act of radical self-love. But I guess I think that Johnny Allen, the man that Centoya shot, I think their family would hear that and be outraged. Yes, they should be outraged. It's a terrible thing. I understand that they lost somebody they love. I wish it hadn't happened. I also wish that Centoya hadn't felt the need to defend herself because she was in danger. Both things can be true and are. Thank you so much for talking to me about this case. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. 
With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For today, that's our show. We're back five days a week, coming down your feed bright and early each morning. Tell us what you think by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That review is how other people find us, so it really helps a lot. On Twitter, you can find us at Slate Podcasts, or you can follow me at Mary's Desk. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 